Welcome to the Evolved Athlete Podcast, where the best in the business bring you the best in fitness, nutrition, wellness, and overall, making you the best athlete of all time. We're host Coach P and his fellow coaches, Kayla, Destiny, Jen, and Ian, take you on a path to greatness. Let's get on with our guest and let's have a great time. Let's roll. Welcome back to the Evolved Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Coach P, and today I have the pleasure of having my good friend and colleague, Dr. Mike Lane from EKU here. We're gonna talk all about how to use cardio the right way for fat loss. And so, and this is often a tool that fitness coaches will use either to help shed off extra pounds of body fat, but then as we know, it's also very important for all-cause mortality and general health. But what I usually, and I'm dying to get all of your expertise on this as well, is how it relates to utilizing cardiovascular training the right way? When is the best times to use it when undergoing a weight loss phase? Should we refrain from using it? Or is it, as they say, the worst thing to do when it comes to weight loss in general? And so first, Mike, let's get your, your first take on this as far as what are the general recommendations for what we need for cardiovascular training just for health? Okay. So just for health, we're really just talking about we want to be physically active in a moderate and talk about zone two, really something you could do comfortably for an hour. So we can be talking about going for a nice long walk. This can be talking about rucking, riding a bike. This can be talking about going for a jog if you're in good enough cardio condition, but you can do essentially unlimited amounts of moderate physical activity and it's only gonna help work towards you. It's only when we do vigorous, super high intensity stuff that you should probably only do so much of it per week and then it can be deleterious, but it's still gonna be better to have done too much really high intensity stuff than have been sedentary in the first place. Right. So yeah, it turns out as much as I hate the fact that he was right, a, a cross country coach I worked with at SLU was having the kids run and he, go, he looks over me and he's like, they're training the most important muscle, they're training the heart. <laughs> and I'm like, you son of a bitch, cause like your heart, your heart fails, you die. Damn it. Yep, that's absolutely right. true. And I so- I thought it was biceps. I thought it was biceps. <laughs> So I've, for a long time, you know, when I was first coached by my first coach who did starting strength and I did my first weight loss cut ever, our, we didn't even take into consideration general health recommendations. In fact, his standpoint on things was we're going to save doing excessive amounts of cardiovascular training until we absolutely have to, to help create that deficit. And so, and now I understand that as a coach with having trained many different individuals myself, been successful in weight loss, I now understand why. But my my biggest question is what you can't just not burn calories when you do cardiovascular training. Mm -hmm. So the, is the bigger issue when it comes to cardiovascular training, saving it for use? Is it because if we use it way too fast too soon at the beginning, we become so efficient with it that it has to do an absurd amount of cardio to burn the same amount of calories to create that deficit? Or are people simply using it the wrong way in that it interferes with their strength training performance? Because I'm starting to see that as still, when you're in a deficit, one of the most important priorities to maintain is performance and strength training to maintain muscle mass. What is your take on that argument? So that's really complicated. So first, well, the second part you brought up is what's known as the interference effect, which is cardiovascular training is going to slightly impede the amount of progress you're gonna make from resistance training. Doesn't seem to happen when you're in a caloric surplus, barely seems to happen whenever you're in a caloric balance, but when you're in a caloric deficit, that's where you can lose your gains and start to shed more lean mass than you're looking for. Now on the flip side, as far as 
It's a tool like any other. The problem with cardiovascular training is the more you do it, the more efficient you get at it, right. the less calories you burn doing the same amount of thing. And we as humans live in what's known as a constrained model of energy expenditure. So it's not, I do cardio and now I burn more calories throughout the day than I did before. It's if we keep doing consistent amounts of cardio, we're going to find is because we're now smaller and leaner, our resting metabolic rate goes down, maybe our non-exercise activity thermogenesis goes down because right. we're just not as fidgety and moving as we would otherwise. That's where if you're going to add cardio, which I would thoroughly suggest pretty much everyone have some form of cardio, have some type of step counter and make sure that you're consistent with those steps because right. they'll go out and they'll go run five miles and then they'll for the other 20 hours of the day, when normally, oh geez, you're making sure something doesn't fall on me. Uh, <laughs> normally, they would have walked five miles anyway, so their caloric burn was about the same. The key thing is they just did it one sentence, or one big stimulus, and then took the rest of the day off. Right, so it's not so much that cardiovascular training just magically stops burning calories after weeks and weeks of being in a deficit, it's just other physiological processes start to occur that start to play against you that you have to be aware of and making sure that you're keeping activity consistent throughout. And so that makes better sense now because when I when I heard the argument of many coaches saying, don't do cardio at first because it'll be pointless doing it later on, that didn't make sense mm -hmm. bioenergetic wise when it comes to there's still a cost of physical activity. And so now I'm understanding more and more why you know certain coaches like or scientists like Dr. Mike Isratel will say, choose things that have a smaller stimulus to fatigue ratio. And so, which I think he coined himself. <laughs> uh, or yeah, we probably got it from Mike Stone somewhere in that education he had, but absolutely. The problem with doing high intensity interval training, so you can be talking about doing sprints or otherwise, it beats you up. It sits hard on the body, but just about anybody can walk an hour a day and have no soreness, no negative effect on their training from it. And so hence, picking things that are sustainable, low intensity, so you're not taking away from the stimulus you're trying to get from lifting. So it's still just calorie balance, folks. It's still calorie balance. And you only want to cut so many calories out, so then you still have to look on the burning side of it. And that's when we can talk about adding different types of exercise. And to belabor the point when it comes to introducing cardio, if you're working with somebody that's already of a normal body weight, so to speak, they're you know relatively lean and they're now trying to look, you know, um, incredibly lean, like show ready, you know, beach ready, whatever way we want to cause it or call it. We want to save that cardio to the end, but if you're working with somebody that's really sedentary in the first place and or very, very heavy, you want to start off with cardio just to build that work capacity, that okay? ability yeah, to tolerate what you're doing. And then we can, once they get comfortable with, I mean, you might start people off with only riding a recumbent bike because walking at a 400 pounds is way too hard on your knees and ankles. And then, you know, as they get to be in better, better condition, we can start to give them the same amount of cardio, which we're really just doing to make sure they've got that work capacity. But then we push them hard in the weight room. And I, I absolutely agree with this. And that's what I was actually telling my weightlifters in bioenergetics class last night. It's like, even if you're a weightlifter, you still need some sort of cardiovascular capacity to actually get through your workouts that if you don't have, you could be leaving gains on the table. And so and now I understand why it's so important that certain people will say, continue to add steps as much as you possibly can, because it's much easier to recover from doing 10 to 12 to 13,000 steps per day than it is doing an hour of actual running, which is gonna be much harder impact, takes a lot longer to recover from that, especially mm -hmm. in terms of mileage. So let's break this down systematically for our audience now. First, what is the general guidelines for anybody, frequency, modalities, or cardiovascular training per week for overall health benefits? What are the benefits of just doing cardiovascular training? 
Okay, if we're talking just benefits in general, we're talking about things that's going to help with normalizing blood sugar, blood pressure, as well as improving your heart's overall function and morphology, which turns out is going to decrease risks of things like heart attacks and strokes over the long run. And it's just good for pretty much every system in the body because it's going to help you get a little bit more nutrient turnover, a little bit more blood flow to all of your muscles. With that being said, would you say someone that has a high VO2 max also has a higher ability to recover from all modalities of physical activity? Does that also convert in that way? Ooh, see now we're asking about which tissues recover faster. And actually, just to kind of have a a quick aside, is we do the strength conditioning uh, programming with the cross-country team here. If you guys have never had the chance to lift weights with a cross-country runner, don't. Because they don't need rest periods. They literally rack the bar, change the weight, and get right back under the bar again because they've got that great cardiovascular fitness that you talked about to where they can recover and do another set, recover and do another set. But same thing, if we're going to talk about a pitcher in baseball, if you gas out after throwing one pitch, you're useless. Right. But if you can keep throwing because you get that aerobic base to get your systems to recover, well, and it's recovering in this case, is from nutrient delivery. So oxygen glucose, removing carbon dioxide, you know, other byproducts of metabolism. So when you're working with folks and you're looking at that aerobic capacity of the individual, you don't necessarily need to get them to be a cross country level, but if we're in better condition, in general, you're gonna recover faster. Now that being said, is a recovery issue an energetic, which is cardiovascular system is always gonna help you, or is it a straight up morphological so literally like building back the damage to the muscle because having a better cardiovascular base is probably not going to help your muscles build themselves back any faster because that's limited by the machinery inside the cells not your ability to deliver those nutrients to the same degree as the energy counts. Okay. That, make, that makes a lot of sense and I really appreciate that distinction. And so now from, so it's not gonna help us build muscle any faster, but it could help with our capacity to do more work throughout the workouts itself. Mm-hmm. With that being said, of it improving performance and recovery during the workout, does that also apply in general outside of your workout with how you recover in between workouts? Sleep quality, quality of life, how you handle stress, resilience. Does VO2 max also influence those areas? So it's like anything else of, I like to think of functional reserves. So like you and I sitting here having a conversation, you know, has a metabolic demand of about 3.5 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body mass, maybe a little bit, scales a little bit differently depending on metabolic rate and things along those lines. But you figure if you and I were going max VO2 as hard as we could, we'd be talking about having a VO2 of probably somewhere, I hope it's in the 40s, but uh, doubt it's gonna be in the 50s. I'm not in that great of cardiovascular shape anymore. But, so this represents less than 10%. Now, imagine our VO2 max was 15, meaning going at a moderate walk was like, that's that's redlining the engine, like that is hard for your body to hold. I'm gonna have to take a deep breath in each sentence and I'm not gonna be able to keep up the conversation. And right. so you could see how everything in your life is now gonna become more stressful. And when things are stressful in the body, that's pulling you out of that parasympathetic state, putting you into that sympathetic state, which in turn is diminishing your body's ability to recover. So if you have a much greater capacity, if everything in your life is incredibly easy except for your workouts, it turns out it's easy, so it's not stressful in the body, which means all of that finite recuperative ability can be put towards recovering from that training. And to belabor your point even more about the cardiovascular fitness, it's at 24 hours in a day. So if I have to do five work sets in the back squat and it takes me three minutes to recover from each because I'm in decent shape, well, 
I can get done with that in about 20 minutes, you know, not including warmups. Whereas if it takes me a solid 10 to 15 minutes to recover from one set and I'm sucking air through like pure oxygen, like now just getting through the squat part of the workout, we're talking about the better part of an hour. So just good old economy. And that's where when it comes to the cardio side, if you're somebody that doesn't have time, yeah, do high intensity interval. It's better to do something than nothing. But if you're somebody that has hopefully the latitude in your life to be able to go for a walk at night, go for a ruck, you know, do something, you know, be that uh, bourgeoisie individual with your Peloton looking down at people literally and metaphorically from your nice little penthouse apartment and yeah, get some decent zone two cardio in. I love that. I love that distinction. And it makes so much more sense now. And hopefully some big takeaways to our audience there is even if your goals are strength related, cardiovascular training still plays a very, very important piece. And so to illustrate for those particular listeners who are engaged in bodybuilding, strength training, putting up weights and wanting to improve their aesthetics. Now, what can we say from just a baseline, not at the end of a fat loss phase, mm-hmm. but just for a baseline, what would be the optimal frequency per week and overall sessions and how often should they change that intensity? So listening to Dr. Peter Atia and everyone else mm-hmm. on their zone two cardio, you can hear Huberman talk about this all the time. They usually say from a minimum perspective that you would need at least two zone two cardio sessions per week in one zone five. So in English, two, maybe up to 120 to 180 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week or 60, 20 to 60 minutes of higher intensity activity per week. What would you say is the minimum effective dose people would need for health quality benefits? I think they pretty much hit the nail on the head. The only key thing I would say is... When it comes to responders to aerobic style training, there are some folks that are quote unquote non-responders. And what's fascinating, when you look further into that, it's they're a non-responder at that amount of volume, like the old school hard gainer. Some people only need one or two sets and that's enough that's gonna really elicit great morphological change. They're gonna get bigger, they're gonna get stronger. Other folks, two sets barely gets them the whole on of their muscle mass. They need more like five, six, seven. And so, I would suggest instead of, start off with that recommendation, it's perfectly fine. And if you notice your aerobic fitness is not moving where you want it, you add in a third zone two session. And it minus a fourth, and there's some non-responders that literally need to be doing cardio nearly six times a week in order to really elicit positive gains. Everyone, everyone gets better, but the key thing is, is the human body is lazy. It doesn't want to get better unless you tell it, like, we have no choice. We will die unless we do this. That's why really hard training tends to elicit really good results because your body doesn't understand that you're just working out to look pretty. It instead is going, oh shit, like we might die. We need to do something about this. So for some people, that signal needs to be a lot bigger in order to have that effect. And those are the folks that don't be afraid. Like if you're like, I'm not really getting better cardiovascular fitness, none of this is feeling easier, you might need to titrate up even more times. Uh, my wife's a great example of it. She's somebody that is, she's a responder to aerobic training, but she's only a responder to high volume uh, frequency per week of a number of different sessions. Whereas she, I am, uh, this, it feels weird. It feels like uh, admitting something uh, morally wrong. I naturally have a decent aerobic base, which saddens me because I probably should have been a long distance runner, not a power lifter, except for I have a skeletal structure that's meant to be a power lifter. So I'm this weird middle ground. And effectively, whenever we ran, um, uh, we did a marathon, a couple half marathons, like I would just run twice a week and that was enough to 
get me in really good shape to go running. Well, really? Wow. And wait, could you go for long periods of time without gassing out? Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's one of my many very things. interesting. One work. of the many things I'm ashamed of, but you know, and that's where <laughs> tell us, some people are really good responders. And don't get me wrong, by no means was I ever turning out six, you know, or five or sub five minute mile. Like no, 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 I was never fast. But my aerobic base and the ability to perform large volumes of work has always been pretty good. Which you're really type two power athletes. They don't have that, right? You know, they're they're great. That's why the sport of football is played by very powerful type two fiber athletes, and they don't look like marathon runners because you know, it turns out very different fiber type gives you advantages <laughs> in those situations. Very different. So we've got the baseline of training slow, and so it seems to be the magic spot for most individuals, anywhere from two to four sessions. If you're someone who needs a little bit more, going to about six sessions per week would be acceptable. Now, would you also say that we should also vary the intensity? And so in that force, to get our VO2 max as high as it could possibly be, we have to do actual VO2 peak work, like zone five mm -hmm. or high intensity interval training mm -hmm. to do so. I keep making that look because zone five is not a pleasant zone to occupy. Right. And I think, and this is a big thing, issue I find in the fitness industry too, what people think is high intensity actually is not. Like mm -hmm. when you look at the actual clinical research as what is defined as high intensity, for lack of a better word, that shit sucks <laughs> when it comes to the protocols. Because you can either do the 10 by one or it's the four by four, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so can you illustrate for our audience what those actually mean? They make you throw up. <laughs> yeah, just four minutes of pinning it as hard as you physically can, followed by four minutes of backing it down, and then repeat that usually for uh, three or so rounds. But you actually have to get your heart rate above 85 or 90% of your heart rate max before that actually begins, correct? Well, you're, well, I mean, it shouldn't take you that long to get it up there, but it's you're pinning it. Like you, you wouldn't be like, oh, that was a nice set. You'd be like, how am I supposed to recover from this and do this again? Like, I can barely get through a 30 second wind gate at that intensity. <laughs> I, yeah, that's why it is, you know, hard training hard. And, and that's where it's okay to be like, this is too uncomfortable. I don't like it. And just live in zone two and then start flirting, like you said, with giving yourself some slightly more intense challenges, or you can build up to that. So start with a 10 second all out sprint, you know, live in that ATP PCR where you're like, ah, oh, this isn't so bad. And then get up to a 15 second. You're like, oh, this kind of sucks. And then once you get over that 30 seconds mark, you're like, why do people do this? Like, this is awful. <laughs> and then you can keep kind of expanding how long you can hold that because your systems are going to get better at it. Right. As well as you're literally going to grow to tolerate it more. Like you literally getting a little bit stress or pain inoculated for lack of a better term. And yeah, no, that's why I, my, I keep cringing with that zone five stuff because it's like, yeah, I, I don't like it. <laughs> no, I, I love doing the high intensity stuff, but I have to build back up to be able to get to that point to be able to do it. And it is hell in the absolute beginning. So with so much of the focus now in our industry and what we've just talked about pinning, okay, zone two, obviously important. You should mm -hmm. definitely try to do this often throughout the week. Zone five, maybe once or twice a week, mm -hmm. right? Does that mean that everything else in between should be neglected? It's not that zone three cardiovascular training or four wouldn't have any positive impact. Mm -hmm. And we know that specificity of training particular energy systems is why zone two and zone five are such held in high regard. Does that mean that doing exercise slightly above zone two or slightly below zone five does not have any merit or any benefit to it? So think of it more along the lines of a threshold. If we're in zone one, we're at least moving. We're burning calories. We're slightly increasing our cardiovascular 
vascular demands. Our like, tissues, like a light walk. Right? Yeah, our tissues have to do something. When we get into zone two, that's when a lot of people, not everyone, is going to get to where their heart has essentially its highest stroke volume, amount of blood it pumps per beat. And that's really good because when we're having that heart fully relax and fully contract each time, we're helping change the morphology of our heart in that we're going to increase the size of those vessels and then slightly thicken the myocardium in a normal healthy heart, which allows resting heart rate to go down, improves it, Ejection fraction improves our good old cardiovascular fitness. So once we go above zone two, we have the same thing going on in zone three and zone four. So the key thing is you can chill out in zone two for an hour. Zone three, maybe not so much. Zone right. four, same thing. So it's more of when we look at those recommendations, think of those kind of just minimal goals. Now, when you go to zone five, which... I would never put my parents in zone five because right. they are not spring chickens anymore. And so because we're trying to essentially get our heart at a pretty high percentage of our maximum and like it's just your injury risk goes up, so to speak, though, you know, it's not like you can pull a heart muscle. It's, we're not going to go into those negative outcomes, but you want to instead think of, yeah, when we make that heart work maximally, it actually becomes slightly less efficient, doesn't have as much time to fill with blood, so your stroke volume goes down a little bit. But now we're making that heart muscle, instead of getting those big full contractions, we're doing the equivalent of maximal lifting, where we're trying to recruit all those fibers and make them move at a higher rate, which once again, positive effects upon the body, but you, yeah, you don't want to live there all day. And specificity, like if your goal is to be in certain ranges, the problem with cardiovascular training is you get better at it the longer you do it. So what used to be zone two intensity is eventually going to slip into zone one. Exactly. And so, and I was trying to illustrate this to my students last night saying you can start at the beginning of a training program, hitting zone two, walking at an incline at 8% at maybe 2.8 to 3.2 miles an hour. But over time, as you start to get better and better and better, you'll find that you might have to jog at three and a half to four miles an hour to be able to then get to that point. It gets better and better and better. And so trying to illustrate to them that that increase in metabolic flexibility actually can be great if you want to improve your performance in various modalities of activity. And so I had no choice but to make the CrossFit example of how that would apply and how using zone to cardio could allow you to be better at anaerobic style of exercise and being less likely to need to rely on carbohydrates so fast until you get to that point, thus improving your performance, which I think is also why ultra marathon individuals, aerobic athletes get to that point to where they're so good to where their zone two is chucking it at six and a half, seven miles an hour. Absolutely. Campus. And that's where, you know, going back to the cross, the cross is about pacing. You know, the key thing is you want to finish that workout effectively wiped because that means you paced yourself well. We, we joke uh, with the cross country as you can tell junior high and high school kids because they'll be able to sprint the last damn near quarter mile and be fine. Like, dude, if you can sprint the last quarter mile of a 5k, you held back for that first almost three miles of that run. Like you were not pinning it. Like the one that can barely kick at the end, that's somebody that actually put it all out there. And so since your goal with CrossFit is to like golf, to do it, do as little of, of it as possible or to do, spend as little time doing it as possible. Your goal is to try to think about being right at that physiological limit where you can perform the exercise without failure. And of course, yeah, if you've got a better aerobic motor, like go figure. The guys that win are well-rounded and ladies, but they often tend to put a pretty good showing on the aerobic components. And it's not like they're just good at the strength feats. They obviously have that aerobic base, which is impressive. Super interesting. And so we've talked a lot about health. We've talked a lot about performance. Now let's get into weight loss strategies. And so let's say at 
at the beginning of a weight loss phase, the best place to start would be, as we've already discussed, setting them up for improving their VO2 max, improving their aerobic capacity so they can actually handle higher intensities that are later to come on. What are your first recommendations when you work with someone as far as where to begin someone as far as preferences, styles, and overall volume and intensity of cardiovascular training? So like anything else, we see where they're at initially. Some folks would prefer to effectively have all of their calorie loss through diet, which is fine. Other folks would like to keep the diet relatively consistent and increase that essentially calorie burn, which is fine. And then most folks are a combination of the two. So the key thing is, is we want to have knowns of here's how many calories they're getting in each day. And here's how much exercise, general physical activity they're getting each day. Cause that aforementioned, they'll go ahead and they'll actually before other folks, when you start to pull back calories, that non-exercise activity thermogenesis goes down. People take less steps per day. They burn less calories just in activities of daily living. So we want to try to control for both of those and then look at their program. If they're already somebody that's playing sports that have a big cardiovascular component, or they just have a lot of that built into their life, that lever is already kind of being pulled. So let's lean more on the calorie side of it. Whereas if you've got somebody that all they do is lift weights and they try to park the closest to the gym and everywhere else and like, don't try to move. It's like, dude, just go take a half hour walk each night. Like just go for a little walk around your neighborhood, chill out. And that's going to burn some calories, put them in a little bit more of a deficit, but have that low intensity. And then once we need to get more specific, that's when you can get into that, you know, proverbial handcuffing yourself to the treadmill at that incline when you have that heart rate within those ranges for X amount of time to really make sure we've got more controls over how much you're losing. Okay, I really love that approach. Now, would you say that holding back on higher intensities of activity for later aspects of a cut could be of actual benefit, or do you think that's individualistic depending on who you're working with and what they're able to tolerate, and in this case, maintain exactly. the entire weight loss period. And I think therein lies the thing is what can people tolerate and do consistently? So having them go and start off with doing the Rocky training montage is going to work for like meh, maybe one to 5% of the population. <laughs> you know, most folks do better if we just start off with like, hey, we just want you to do 120 minutes of zone two work a week, meaning you could go for a 30 minute walk, you know, three times a week or four times a week, math. Or, and then we can put in that zone five after we show that we can do that and just slowly titrate that up based upon whatever they tolerate. Yeah, or you can just, you know, figure out what they're currently like to do and then where can you maybe try to build in a bit more. And that's, now we get to the park in the very back of the parking lot. Right. You know, do not go into fast food restaurants. I mean, that's probably a period, but uh, at least don't use the drive-through or things, you know, just simple things that we're encouraging a bit more physical activity in our day, which is things that humans used to do as a means to burn more calories. Fun fact, the treadmill was a torture device. <laughs> it was literally the treads that turned the mill to grind the flour in uh, uh, the UK. Oh, it was no like, way. Yeah, like a seven, like 1600s uh, torture device. And now we're using it for exercise. <laughs> yep. Well, it's like Conan and the Wheel of Pain. We're not putting it there because it's a great time. So I, I love the incrementally increasing over time, choosing what someone is going to better maintain. Now let's approach the, the steps strategy that many coaches use. And so what I've seen, what I've done before as well, is slowly increasing steps over time before we start to really increase a lot of actual cardiovascular. You're on the elliptical, you're on the Stairmaster, so on and so forth. And this is what I absolutely love describing individuals as well is 
oftentimes when it comes to caloric expenditure, you know, walking just takes just a little bit longer to burn the same amount of calories. Can you now educate us from a physiological perspective, A, why walking is actually a really great tool to use for weight loss and how it compares to the amount of calories that you burn from normal cardiovascular training? Okay, so the amount of oxygen you're taking in is always going to highly correlate with the amount of calories you're burning. So hence walking, it does require more than we're burning at rest, but it's nowhere near than if you're doing maximal sprints and otherwise where you can't even actually support that aerobically. So yeah, you're always going to burn more calories doing maximal sprints, wind gates, or things along those lines in that period of time. But the key is you can only do so many wind gates in a given day before you're going to just be beat. But you can go and do low intensity cardio pretty much as much as you want, as long as, you know, your feet don't hurt too much and you've got decent footwear for it. Right. So when you're working with anybody, it's low skill, it's low impact, it's not having all of the other fatigue that you're going to get from doing sled sprints and otherwise that you're going to need to take and give your body time more to recover from the damage you're doing, but we're burning calories as we're doing it. So effectively, if we're gonna think about, you know, muscle contraction uses energy no matter how fast we're doing, but the higher the intensity of those contractions, the more little micro trauma you're getting to those muscles, to those tendons, to those joints, and to the bones to a certain extent that they will then get better at, but it requires a lot more resources. So. Cardio, low intensity stuff's nice because you finish it and that's it. Your body's not having to fix the damage you did. Whereas our bodies are perpetually trying to fix the damage we did in the weight room because that's the entire point, using that stimulus to get better. So when you work with individuals, let's say in coaching, where do you usually start someone at a baseline level of steps per day for this weight loss process? So we can use the research of the 10,000 steps per day, which China. was... <laughs> Uh, it's Japanese, but yeah, Japanese. I believe so. And but you know, it was one of those like, okay, like, key thing is, I'm just gonna see where they're at. And so, if there's somebody that does only two thousand steps per day, it's like, well, shoot, if I put them at ten thousand, now we five x it, and actually they might be sore from it. Like my feet hurt, and like I know why. Right. We just five extra volume. So figuring out where they're at, and then just titrating that up, probably ten to twenty percent, depending on obviously a number of different variables and then see how they tolerate that and then keep trying to titrate that up on a week by week basis until 10,000 steps is kind of a nice round number to think about. It's, it's about, depending on your size, around 300 to 500 extra calories per day. Would yeah, you say. and well, it can be about, uh, it's usually about five miles for folks. So depending on body size, uh, somebody our size, that can be more, yeah, like, almost 500 And calories. I've usually found it takes at least for someone our average size about 10 minutes to get 1,000 steps. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that as well? And then now we're getting a pace and everything. And so right. some folks like, right, they're gonna, exactly. they're not, uh, I would, using the term waddle can be denigrating, <laughs> but you know, it's, you know, some folks saunter, you know, some folks mall walk and, you know, the cadence that people have when they're walking, like how long their legs are, how strong they're relative to their body weight, all those things. The key thing is just getting in that general volume of exercise that's going to give you all these positive gains with very little downsides. The, I mean, really, aside from the, you know, rolling an ankle, going off of a street or slipping and falling if the weather is bad outside, like, I've heard of stories of people who literally will go to like Walmart or Lowe's and they will, uh, it was one story that my wife found and showed it to me, which was a lady for her weight loss plan, went to Walmart, went to the dog food aisle, 
put like five or six bags of dog food in there and walked every single aisle in Walmart pushing the cart <laughs> as the way that she burned her calories. Hey, that's a good way to do it. Always gonna be, you know, whatever comfortable temperature they thermoregulate that uh, Walmart to. You don't have to worry about, you know, stormy days. You don't have to worry about freezing cold. You don't have to worry about brutal heat. Like, it's gonna be 70 in twilight perpetually inside of a Walmart, so. Hey, and you don't have to pay for a gym membership there. Get your steps in. Hopefully That's... it doesn't get you in trouble that I threw out the idea of. Anyways. <laughs> no, I, I really like that. And it's it's such a useful thing to just get people used to just finding ways to move more. You mm -hmm. don't really have to do these absurd amounts of things to just try and make up that energy deficit that so many try to make. So would you say keeping it consistent all the way through a weight loss program is going to be the most beneficial thing to do? obviously to create that energy deficit and then doing what is going to be more necessary for this particular individual, what's easier to handle, less calories or more activity. I remember you saying that before mm -hmm. on a previous podcast we've done together is going by the individual and what they can tolerate exactly. the best. Now, my next question is, and I'm sure many people are going to ask this as well, is also to realize once the weight loss phase is done and they've achieved their goals, what are your best recommendations for then what to do about cardiovascular training? Because I think the biggest mistake people make is they all of a sudden stop altogether what they're doing. You have to maintain these habits for life. Now, does that mean they have to continue doing crazy amounts of cardiovascular training or do they need to realize that there is a minimum effective dose that must be done forever? I know the answer, but. <laughs> you always have to work as hard as you can, never be happy. Contentment is a sign, no. Uh, effectively, when you're looking at individuals and they finish that phase, and this is where you can have folks stop all that stuff, go back to the previous eating patterns, and then that's where they overshoot their previous body weight. Yep. And it's just like, what did we just do? So hence, we're always talking about, unless you're trying to do a bodybuilding show, a figure competition where it's like, you're gonna go to a place that human beings are not meant to occupy for long periods of time, plain and simple. So you need to get in and then get out. But for the rest of your life, you're trying to look at what is sustainable, which is you should have cardio you like. Now the cardio you like, we've got a coworker that essentially mountain biking and road biking is yeah. like a deep part of their life. Like when they can't do it, it is upsetting to them. And that's where they get in, obviously a lot of low intensity aerobic work. We've got another coworker that, uh, well, we'll simply say enjoys skating on ice and, you know, <laughs> and, but that's another way that, you know, that's, a, can be zone two, just, just like the hiking. If you're into swimming, another great low intensity or sorry, not low intensity when you're swimming hard, but low impact exercise that you can have somebody do. And then hell, I have no people that have done and used dance as a form of cardiovascular if you're keeping it up high enough. And then I guess, well, there's other things you can do in zone two in a bedroom if you can keep it up for that long, but <laughs> that requires effort. And I don't know how weird it might be if you're wearing heart rate monitors and the, but anyways, anyway, so not just dropping it, but maybe dialing it back and dialing it back to something that is going to again seem sustainable. And from there, let's just ride. I'm a big fan of if you're gonna go through, unless you're that bodybuilder, you're gonna do a cut, your goal should be to maintain that new body weight yep. for at least a month or two to get an idea of like, do I wanna keep doing the things I need to do to be here? And there's nothing wrong with being like, no. I don't want to be here anymore. It's the reason why I rarely ever go down in the 190s anymore outside of stomach flus. Because it's like, yes, I am leaner, but all of the heavy weights hurt a lot more because right. I don't have the padding and everything else that comes with it. And so with the, the greater amount of mass. So for individuals, 
What do they really want? What are they trying to get out of this? And what gives them their better quality of life? Because like anything else, if they just put on 50 pounds overnight, probably not going to feel as good. Right, exactly. And so I think major takeaways, and depending on who you are, for individuals who are losing weight for maybe the first time and they're going through this process of not having good habits and not being healthy themselves, these are things we need to do to have permanent lifestyle changes for life. You know, Cardiovascular training should be part of your life, always. Strength training should be a part of your life, always. Practicing good habits should always be a part of your repertoire. But if you're someone who's more seasoned, realizing that you don't have to do hours on the Stairmaster every day, find things that you can sustain that are enjoyable. And so and that's why I know Dr. Lane himself likes rucking, all right? Mm-hmm. And actually rucking is starting to gain a lot of popularity among a lot of people because it's very novel in its way that you can get good zone two, sometimes zone three or zone four cardio, depending on where you're doing it. Um, and I find it, it is actually really, really enjoyable ways. So finding the things that you can sustain and get enjoyable, make them recreational so you don't always have to be in a gym. Just find ways to be active throughout your life for the rest of your life, I think is a good message here. Absolutely. However, I'm going to challenge the principle there, which is rucking was the major form of transportation for humans, especially ones that weren't rich and had horses for a real long period of time. So we're we're not inventing something that wasn't there before. It's like you carry your belongings with you. And now we're just choosing to do just like everything else. Like we don't have to go out and actually kill the animal and eat it. We can just go to the store and get it. But I do think that it is, you know, something that human beings can do to large volumes without having a lot of negative outcomes on their joints, tendons, ligaments, and everything else. So, yeah, find what you enjoy. Find what you enjoy, stick to it, do it often, and you'll always have success. Mike, always love chatting with you. I know everyone at Evolve loves you too. And all right, Dr. Mike and I also have a podcast here at EKU that we do. And so be sure to tune into that as well. If you want some more hard science, this will not be the last time that Dr. Mike will stop by Evolve to say hello. All right. So for all more information that you guys would like at Evolve, please be sure to stop by. Please visit the link below and hit our application. You might actually be able to win a free month of coaching from the best in the fitness coaching business. This has been Coach B with Evolve Health and Performance, and I'll see you on the next one. Coach P's out. If you like today's episode, please be sure to drop a like, share it with all your friends, and give us a great review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to work with the best in the business, please be sure to head over to all of our social media web pages at Evolve Health and Performance. Us at Evolve are trying to make you the best athlete of all time and realize your full potential. Stay tuned for all future episodes where we bring you the best guests and features for everything health, fitness, and wellness. For everything Evolve, stay tuned. Coach P's out.